Monocle on Culture is brought to you in association with The Woolmark Company. Every week on Monocle on Culture, Robert Bound and his guests discuss what has piqued their interest in our one-stop shop for lively reports and in-depth interviews on the newest and finest in art, film, books and media. At The Woolmark Company, we are just as passionate about the curation of The Perfect Wardrobe, fashion from the most versatile, sustainable, all-round fibre, wool. Australian merino wool is naturally soft and breathable and resistant to odour, creases and UV rays. Materials made from the fibre are versatile and can be worn across the seasons. It's active, meaning that it reacts to changes in the wearer's body temperature. It keeps you toasty when it's cold and cool in summer. Consumer research from Nielsen revealed that consumers perceived wool items as being difficult to care for, which is a common misconception. In fact, many wool items can be machine washed and even tumble dried at home. It's also eco-friendly. When you wash it, wool microfibers released are biodegradable and gradually break down when they reach the ocean. When you wash synthetic products, the microfibers persist and can harm marine life. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. Rob's off sunning himself in Mexico, so today you've got me, Ben Rylan, running the show. The topic up for discussion today is the latest film by the French auteur and sometime provocateur, Francois Ozon. It's called By the Grace of God, and it's ripped from the headlines account of a real-life cover-up of sex abuse in the French Catholic Church. The film focuses on a group of men, all of whose lives have in some way been affected by abuse at the hands of a senior member of the church, deftly balancing heavy emotions with the frustrating complexities of the French legal process. It's certainly a challenging case to bring to the screen, not least because the real-life story is very much still in motion. By the Grace of God premiered at the Berlin Film Festival, where it took the Jury Grand Prix prize and has been well-received by critics. But what do our guests think? Well, joining me in the studio to discuss it today are Karen Krasanovich and Tim Roby. Now, those familiar with the work of Francois Ozon will probably know that few of his films ever really bear any resemblance to what came before it. This is no exception, of course. Uh, most recently, just to bring people up to speed, Ozon has dabbled in psychosexual thriller territory with Lamont Double, which had more in common with those sexy thrillers of the 80s than most anything being made today. But there was also France, which was a far more sedate and emotional story told in the aftermath of the First World War. Tim, perhaps you wouldn't mind bringing us up to speed with the setting of this one, By the Grace of God. Yeah, so this is a, a very urgent contemporary film for Ozon to be making. The events that it narrates have just all taken place in the last few years. The story really begins in 2014, when one man in his 40s, who is the victim of child abuse by a priest long ago in his childhood, decides that he has to come forward and notifies the church about all this happening and tries to kind of reopen the can of worms in, in a sense. Of course, aware that he's not alone in this and that there are many other men affected. Uh, this is the character played by Melville Poupeau. And then as the film unfolds, for Ozon, quite lengthy running time, two hours 20, it unites all of these men together in a kind of joined attempt to drag the past into the light and to make this particular priest, Father Bernard Prenier, pay for his crimes. Very meticulously researched this film 
And one of the great things about it is the amount of different testimonies that I feel it manages to interweave together. It begins in quite an epistolary way with Melba Pujo's character, Alexandra, writing to the church. Then you hear the letters coming back to him from the Leon's cardinal and then back and forth. And the kind of the way that the church is trying to downplay everything and to sweep it under the carpet while he presses his case more and more urgently and then considers moving it into the legal realm. And that continues with the other characters. There's a lot of writing in this film, as I say, epistolary patterning. Uh, I mean, by now, Karen, I suppose, we are kind of up to speed with what this kind of film is going to be telling us, right? We know all about the abuse that's been happening in various factions of the church all around the world. So we are in somewhat familiar territory, and yet there is still something quite gobsmacking about many of the scenes that we're watching here in in the film. Uh, Given what we know about similar cases, we perhaps shouldn't be surprised at the reaction that we do see by the institution bearing responsibility in this film. But... When we do see it in action, it is still quite shocking, isn't it? Well, I found myself feeling sorry for the abuse victims, not only because they're abuse victims, but also because they, religion, the church, was incredibly important to them and gave them a really safe place to go, I think, against the travails of the rest of existence. Uh, For example, Alexandre, the opening character, he had a a lot of children, and he he had a... a lot of kids and a wife and, you know, a very, very stable sort of ideal Christian home. I put those in scare quotes. And so the fact that this safe spot, the rottenness, was so pervasive that I think it must have destroyed his faith. I mean, coming from a family that, I mean, I'm not myself very religious, but but I have family members who are, and I know how important it is to them. So I think this, this goes almost beyond the abuse level to the point of sheltering these abusers, I think, is even more shocking. Tim, I mentioned there that we do know about other similar cases to this one, but I felt that when the film opens, even though, as you say, it's a very long film, two hours, 20 minutes, it felt like it was in quite a hurry to set us up with the characters who are at the centre of this particular case. This film has quite a narrow focus. Do you think that's beneficial to getting across this message, that it's not trying to be some some sort of big, relevant story that, that encompasses all cases of abuse? It's very much just about these characters. I think that is a real bonus here. It's a very methodical, procedural kind of film. It's it paced a bit like a thriller, really, but it doesn't overdo that. I think the research has been so precise, and Ozon's technique, actually, is really kind of career-topping, I think. He's, it's tremendous here. He manages to get all the information in, while also giving a fair kind of a heed or hearing to many, many different characters who have different points of view. And we're not only talking about the characters who are adversaries, you know, the hires up in the church who want the whole thing buried versus, you know, the, the angry abuse victims. But we're talking about differences of approach within the movement, within the activist movement, the victims themselves having completely different attitudes to how this should be publicised, brought to light, etc., you know, some of them indeed have lost their faith entirely. The character played by Denis Menoshe is is established as a, a complete atheist, and he's the one who really wants to kind of punish the church to kind of broadcast the news from the skies about what they're doing to really kind of go to town. Then there are other characters who do cling on to their faith and what they feel is that the church needs to make amends because the church needs to improve and redeem itself. They want redemption for the institution. They don't want it to be necessarily a punitive matter. So all of this manages to get communicated in an incredibly tense, urgent 
quite pacey way, I think, in, in 2 hours 20. I really feel as though it's been pruned down very cleverly. And, uh, yeah, the, the screenplay that Ozon's come up with does all that work. Uh, I think it's got to be a compliment when you talk about a, a two-hour-plus film and, and still call it pacey. Absolutely. But you're right. It, does, it does feel pacey. When, when you said to the skies, I mean, it it takes in some incredible extremes. And, and I, I'm going to leave that story to you, but it was just gobsmacking. Yeah, there's one scene where uh, they discuss doing some skywriting uh, to <laughs> uh, above the Basilica in Lyon to broadcast what's going on. And one idea is to skywrite a huge penis in the sky uh, because it will grab everyone's attention more than anything else. And then there are, there's a debate within that scene whether that's trivialising the issue, making it ridiculous, etc. Et and whether it will be the right kind of attention. I couldn't believe that scene was happening, but it was so ridiculous that he thought, it's probably true, it actually is probably worse than the, than the real thing. But I mean, I do think that, that Ozone stuck fairly much to fact with this Although he did say that a lot of the physical meetings were actually actually happened online, and also that the nature, the structure of the film had to be like a relay race, mm, yeah. where it starts out with one character, goes on to the other, and the producers were very very nervous about this. But in fact, it's done very well in France. I think it took one million. I think when it opened. Yeah, Something we should address like this, actually, because the film being so recent in terms of its mm. focus, the, the case, the case continues now, and the film has itself been very important in the way that the, the, the case has unfolded. So the film opened in France in February. The priest at the centre of this tried to get it blocked, tried to get its release obstructed. And subsequently, after the film really got this kind of quite broad audience, the church has had no choice. They've defrocked him. So in July, a tribunal defrocked Father Prenya. Criminal justice still awaits him. Meanwhile, the cardinal in charge of him in Lyon, who's uh, Cardinal Barbara, offered his resignation to the Vatican. But the Pope refused, so that hasn't been kind of fully covered. And that character, who becomes more and more important as the film goes on, gives the film its title in a very late scene where he says, by the grace of God, the statute of limitations on these crimes is a mere 20 years, which means that the older cases can't actually be brought to justice. And he actually uses that phrase, which shocks the press people in the press conference where they hear it, because he sounds actively kind of relieved that the French legal system protects abuse when it goes you know, back you got the that impression time. that he he had he had relaxed, or he was so frustrated, or or anxious that that just slipped out. Yeah. Um, mm. Oh, by the grace of God, we, you know, we're going to be okay. It's a shocking thing to and, have slipped and out. And all, and the, and the the audience at this press conference were really shocked and called him on it. And you do see that I think they just wanted business as normal because well, they this kind it was of business as normal. This kind they? of thing is damaging the brand, mm. you know. But I'm really surprised that the Pope refused Barbarin's request to be let go. But they also they also couldn't film. They wanted to film in Barbarin's church, and of course they couldn't, so they had to film all this in Belgium. As we know in the film, it does make it clear this is a very complex story. Mm. But in some ways, I mean, as we said, Tim, the film is playing at the same time as the real life legalities happening in the background, and there are title screens that tell you all about this at the beginning and the end of the film as well. But Karen, the function of this film, in some ways, is usually the domain of journalism, isn't yeah, it? That's this is true. this is a really interesting example of quite literally ripped from the headlines cinema. Ripped from the headlines. Uh, what a lurid, lurid way of putting it. Ozone was saying that he was asked, you know, if, if films can change the world. And he said, you'd have to be a very pretentious filmmaker to say that. But in this case, I think they can. And I also think that I didn't realize the complexity involved in coming forward and saying this priest did this to me, particularly 
as all the families are responding differently, and also the rifts. It's almost like Brexit in a way. You know, it's it's causing rifts within families that you that were sort of underlying. You know, like moms always favorited you. You know, it's always about your story. Well, that's right. One of the cases where I, that really surprised me mm-hmm. was the family who. I mean, we were talking about the, uh, the the kids who couldn't quite come to terms with it and and were sort of hosed down when they brought it up when they yeah. were younger. But there's another example of a family, and this one of the sons did. In, in fact, come to terms with it. And it had the opposite effect where it came to define too much about his character. And that meant yeah. that his siblings felt as if they were sort of shunned out of the spotlight. And he became the favorite in the family he's, because of that. He's, yeah, he's the victim. He's forever the victim. He's always going to be the victim. And I think there is an element of narcissism, which and it's it's almost like the skywriting thing. It's not that these people are pure in any way or that they, you know, that they're any different than anybody else. They too have flaws. It's gratifying to them and puts a balm on their wounds. And, you know, it's hard to give that up. Well, it's cathartic to finally be heard mm. on the subject. Yes. I think w- one thing that's very successful about the structure of the film, as you say, a relay race where we move from Alexandre first to then Francois, Denny Menachet's character, and finally Emmanuel, played by Swan Arlo, I think is amazing, is mm. that we're dealing with them one at a time and it, it increases the idea of their isolation in this trauma, essentially, and having been stuck with this for so long and having no one to really communicate it to. We get to deal with them singly and then they gradually are brought together and even though they have very different outlooks and walks of life there's a very important sense that their solidarity in coming together and to form this movement is the thing that is actually making it work and the mm-hmm. thing that is making the case work mm-hmm. the thing that is getting them finally heard because when there are a bunch of them when it's a kind of cause celebre a class action if you like no one can then singly just ignore one person, you know, and that that is a very key subject here. I think mm-hmm. it's the, the sort of the sense of the look, we've got to get together on this. We've got to get together and present a united front to be heard at all. But I think there's one moment, and I think even though it's 137 minutes, packing these little facets in of the story is an incredible skill where uh, one of the characters goes to the bakery and the guy behind the counter was also abused but he's too afraid to come forward and that's why they have to keep this unified front for the people who killed themselves for the people who aren't coming forward and perhaps for victims that are being victimized now. Mm, absolutely. It's a tremendous scene that you mentioned there. Yeah, really, really great. Really amazing. I'm interested in, in what we think about this idea of journalism cinema, because I mentioned that this is usually the domain of journalism. In this case, we have a film that is sort of filling in that space in some ways, certainly for a lot of people internationally who won't know anything about this story whatsoever. I mean, it does throw up its own set of complexities, doesn't it, Tim, that you've got a film like this that is it's reporting facts in a way, but as Karen was alluding to earlier, there is the question of, of, of how many of the details are actually going to be realistic. Is there more of a pressure on a film like this to get the conversations right and, and to get those smaller details correct when perhaps in other cases of cinema that's based on real life, you kind of know that the scenes that happen behind closed doors can never be exactly as they took place. You just know it's going to be attempting to evoke the, the spirit and the feeling of what actually took place. This one has to be a little bit more true to the facts, doesn't it? It's a tricky one, yeah, because there's clearly been some dramatic license. We don't exactly know you know, in the meetings with uh, Father Bernard himself, of which there are sort of two main ones in the film, we don't exactly know if they would have panned out like that, word for word. I think the more common example of journalistic cinema is in documentaries, 
lately, thinking of a film like Citizen Four about Edward Snowden, Laura Poitras's documentary on that subject, where it was very, very kind of fresh from the headlines. The documentary revealed more about it created more headlines and the story just kept running on from there. That's one example. But there's also been a film on this very subject, The Catholic Church, which was called Maya Maxima Culpa by Alex Gibney, which dealt with a lot of this stuff. And even in a documentary format, though, there is a sort of a, a dramatic sort of license that is taken in terms of the style and in that film there were were kind of creepy shots down church corridors and there was kind of heavy music and there was all this sort of stuff to suggest what was going on behind closed doors so even a documentary is going to kind of push certain buttons in that way I do think this film even though I don't know the absolute verbatim ins and outs of every you know element of the case I do think it feels very responsible and I don't think it feels like a campaigning kind of screed which is you know blurring lines and exaggerating. I feel as though, in fact, if anything, it reveals the complexity of the case and the subtleties and Mm -hmm. the differences between the various victims. These are not just one group. You know, much as they have to unite to kind of present their case, this is not just one homogenous group of people. They are very separate individuals, Mm -hmm. with very separate problems. And it exposes, you know, rifts and contradictions within, which I think is fascinating and very human and, yeah, very successful. What Tim has brought up is something I'm, I'm crazy about is the fact that moderation isn't fun to watch. Anything that's moderate makes sense, shows both sides, even-handed. We're kind of, this is boring. I don't want to know this. I want to be excited. I want to be feel that there's heroes and villains here. And actually, this is a very even film. And if you looked at it with, with the sound off, with the subtitles off, you would think, wow, there's nothing really happened. There's just people talking and walking. There's a lot of street walking in this. I mean, I don't mean street walking. <clears throat> I mean people walking on streets. And you just think, gosh, this is visually really dull. But it almost this kind of moderate levelness allows you to really see. You feel like you're getting some reality in it. And I think that that's... An incredible feat, considering it's often a very, I don't want to say lurid, but it's a very excitable, people get very upset about this, and rightfully so, about this subject. It's relentlessly realistic. There's Mm -hmm. no uh, dramatic moment that you might see. Again, bringing up Spotlight because it has been compared so often, uh, there's no Mark Ruffalo moment where there's a character screaming about what the point of the whole film Mm -hmm. is. It just forces you to go down the same journey that the victims might have had to go down as well. Let's quickly talk about where this fits in into Ozon's canon, I suppose. It's an interesting canon. All of the films inside his hat are quite different to all of the others. I mean, he's also quite a prolific filmmaker. He he generates so much material, Karen. I mean, my feeling is that when you make so many films like this, it can allow some critics to sort of devalue each individual project to Mm. some extent. Yeah, you want to go to Ang Lee on it, do you? I think what it shows about him is that he's, he's very open to different influences. He doesn't want to stay with any particular genre. And I think that filmmakers that do stick to the same subjects often get plastered for it. But he does seem to change quite a bit. And I think it just says more about him as a, as a person. And also that he's going to be more experienced telling different kinds of stories. And he's going to get a different timbre in each of his stories, each of his tales. And I don't want to say he's like Werner Herzog, who just goes off, or, or Ron Howard goes off and does absolutely everything. But <laughs> I think that there is something really trustworthy about that. 
and you feel as if you're in safe hands as opposed to somebody who makes the same kind of movie over and over and over again and hones that in kind of a long, lengthy tale. Tim, do you think there is a degree of power to be had in a filmmaker like Ozon being very selective about what project he wants to do? Because as Karen says, he's not limited to a particular style or he hasn't carved out his own sort of genre. He only chooses projects that that excite him. In some ways, it's a little bit like a filmmaking equivalent of Joyce Carol Oates in that he will make lots and lots of material, but he'll only do it when something is exciting him. Oates, funnily enough, wrote the story on which Lamont Dublé was was based. There is some semblance of power there, isn't it? That he's only going to work when he absolutely feels like it. Yeah, I also think he's very skilled at applying the right style to the right subject. Because there are common threads among his films. He's he's interested in pastiche. He likes melodrama. He can be a quite impish, playful with, with genres that we think we know already. He'll kind of turn them inside out cleverly. Lamont Dublé is a good one. In Dans la Maison, it was another very clever kind of Hitchcockian idea. Uh, there was his country house murder mystery, Eight Women. All of these have a certain kind of slightly campy value in terms of their mm. treatment of genre. And I think the thing that really sets, distinguishes By the Grace of God is that it's his least campy film uh, <laughs> by, by a long way. In fact, what's really impressive, I, I wasn't quite prepared for the degree of rigour as a kind of docudrama maker that he gets into this film. I wasn't ready for it. I think it's it's his most serious-minded film ever yeah. and one of his most brilliant, actually. It's like a career peak. The other one that I really adore, which is also quite serious-minded but much more intimate, is uh, Under the Sand with Charlotte Rampling from 2001 about a woman whose husband disappears, which is a real a masterclass in kind of psychological nuance but really just focusing inside this one woman's headspace. Mm. This has such a broad remit, this film. It gets inside so many different characters' heads so well. I think that when he was talking to some of the the interviews that he did to write the script, they were like, well, "Now wait a minute, <laughs> we've seen your movies before. What kind of movie are you going to make here?" You know, and I think it's a, it is a little worrying. I, I I would have been worried, but I don't think he put any victims together. He did. There weren't any composite victims, were there? They were all pretty true to the actual people, from mm. what I understand. And Absolutely. That too, he was very, very is, true to the spirit of, of the real-life case. As I mentioned earlier, uh, Francois Ozon himself is one of the guests of the big interview this season. I did ask him about some of his thoughts on making By the Grace of God and about how the project came about, which, funnily enough, did originally start as a proposed documentary. When I discovered the testimonies of uh, the victims of uh, abuse when they were a child, I was very touched, especially by the character of Alexandre, who is very Catholic and uh, who had a big fight in the Catholic Church in Lyon. And um, I just wanted to meet these people. So I met them and uh, I was so touched and I liked them so much that I wanted to make first a documentary about them. But they were so disappointed because they knew I was a fiction director. So they were waiting for me a kind of French spotlight. And uh, I realized, well, I, I'm going to, to make a fiction for them. And actually it's what I'm, I'm used to doing. So, so I did it. But um, I wanted to be close the most possible to the reality. But at the same time, uh, when I wrote the script, I didn't give I didn't give the script to the victims. I decided to work with the actor like it was a fiction, and um, so it was it was a new challenge for me because I had never done something like that before. And certainly, the, having the, uh, the your central protagonists, yes. uh, people who were were at least based on on real life people, yes. does that carry 
an extra degree of uh, weight responsibility for you. As it's a, a big responsibility. That's true. But uh, when you love people, you know, you try to to be to be the more honest and to to show how much they are strong. And I wanted to to make them like heroes, like American heroes. You know, like in the Capra movie when you are alone against uh, the institution, like uh, David against Goliath. You know, something like that. So I wanted to. I wanted to, to tell the story from the, their perspective. And because I respect their fight, I had the feeling the fact to be close to them would be good for, uh, for, for, for the film. Uh, stylistically. But for them, when they discovered the film, it was very disturbing. Because usually when you, you see a biopic about yourself or something like that, uh, it's a question of time, you know. But for them, it was very bizarre because it was two years ago, you know. I tell a story which happened in 2014. So it was quite complex for them to have the wide distance to be able to, to watch uh, their own story. Francois is on there. That is part of this season of The Big Interview. You can hear the full episode soon right here on Monocle 24. Now it's that time of the show where we move the conversation to some of the things that this film made us think of. Now, Tim, you wanted to pick up on the career of Melville Poupeau, who plays the lead in this film. I mean, he's had an interesting career of his own, notably, of course, working with Ozon several times, but also with uh, Xavier Dolan as well. Tell us about your thoughts on his career. I mean, it's. It, I think it's fair to say that if you know international cinema, you still could be forgiven for not necessarily knowing a lot about what he's worked on. I think you would recognize his face without necessarily knowing his name. But you'd also probably be reminded that most of his films are excellent. He's got very good taste as an actor, I think. Uh, he's been working quite a long time. He was actually a child actor in the 80s. But I think the the film that brought him to prominence really was Eric Romer's A Summer's Tale in the mid-90s, where he plays a young guy on holiday in a very kind of Eric Romer-ish setup who has three different girlfriends that he's kind of playing off one another. That was a, a really brilliant turn as a, as a, for a young actor, I think. Since then, though, he's just he's he's just gone from strength to strength. He's one of those actors I will kind of watch anything with him in, essentially, because I have faith that he's he he knows what he's doing with scripts. Weirdly, Laurence Anyways, which was the Xavier Donon film he's in, is one of my least favorites of his. But the Ozon films are excellent, and there's one called Time to Leave, which he's in, where he has the leading role as a as a man with AIDS, which is one of the best character studies that Ozon has ever made. And I think he he, he deserved awards attention for that film, uh, Melville. I think he's tremendous. He has a kind of slightly Byronic, intense, dark seriousness to him that really comes out in films like this as well. And you can sense the trauma of the character in By the Grace of God that he's just kind of repressed for all these years. You can sense there's something that he, he needs to get off his shoulders from the word go. And he's got this whole family around him, five children in this film, who he's brought up unquestioningly into the Catholic faith. And he has to explain to them what happens. And he has to explain to them that he's doing it in a way for their own good, because this priest is still out there. He handles those scenes so very well. I think it's such a compelling performance that much as the other actors in the film are excellent, I sort of almost it's almost sad when the film lets go of him because he doesn't become the kind of prime mover in the in the movement. But for the first hour of this film, he's absolutely dominant, and it's yeah, it's one of the one of the best 
performances in this really interesting career. Absolutely necessary to give that kind of role to someone who knows what to do with it. Karen, let's switch over to talking about uh, a term that I, I mentioned earlier that uh, you said was a little bit lurid, ripped from the headlines, <laughs> from the headlines cinema. Headlines. I take it as a compliment. Oh, uh, no, you should. You should. It's, <laughs> it's, it's meant to be exciting and to draw you into stories that you may not well, otherwise indeed, be. Well, indeed, it is something that we would generally associate with something like Law and Order, for example, mm. not necessarily cinema. But it is something that cinema has dabbled in many times, really, for as long as cinema has been around. You think about you know, film, some of the old film noir you know, we're in the 1930s gangster flicks yeah, as well. Absolutely. But it's supposed to be very exciting. And, you know, cinema is supposed to be a place to escape. You know, if you've got a boring life and, and you hate your job or whatever, then it's lovely to come in and, and be excited and forget about forget about the world. And it's movies like, like this. I mean, there are about at least eight or nine movies about abuse within the church and in various countries. So we've got Spotlight, which, of course, was, was the big one in, in America. Then there was the Chilean one uh, called The Club, which which is, which is from the view of, of the priests who have been sort of shunted off to this cabin on top like of a, a mountain. It's house, isn't it? It's yeah. very, very weird. And it's only, it's only revealed very slowly, you know, what they've done and what they're thinking about it, which is, if I remember correctly, not much. Kind of, well, hmm. then you've got this, which is not the kind of film I would normally choose to go and watch. And I like to be entertained and, you know, I'm, I'm not particularly churchgoer or anything like that, as I I was thinking about this, though, because it might have, this might not have been such a tough sell in the 90s when legal thrillers were more commonplace in the multiplexes. But now cinema has changed quite a lot. And as you suggest, Karen, we tend to ask more of films to take us out of the real world now. At least that is what the uh, the popular genres are telling yeah, us. Yeah, anyway. I think so. I don't, I'm not even sure you could make a movie like The Verdict, for example, anymore. You know, anything where, well, of course, that's law. But anytime when you when you've got journalism telling a story, it's getting to the point now where journalism is because of of the way it's financed, the way it's structured, uh, the the broadsheets and also the broadcast uh, bodies, that you begin to distrust them too. I, I saw a bombshell, which is about those kind of institutions, broadcast institutions. And it's getting to the point now where you can't even trust journalism. So you can't trust the church, you can't trust the government, you can't trust journalism either. So I think that this is part of a rolling way of how we begin to see how we get our news, how we trust our news, and how we learn anything that's of any value. I could throw in one more film that's just come out. Not a brilliant film, actually, but uh, the film Official Secrets. But that, what yeah. that shows is that the function of journalists in that film is that they're thrown a ball by the whistleblower, uh, Catherine Gunn. Uh, it's not, they're not, as it were, on the front line in that sense. They have to wait for this bombshell to come to them. But then the question is whether they drop the ball or not, whether they actually kind of do their job well or not. And in various ways in that film, they actually mess it up. So that's the key thing. Journalists don't need to be presented as sort of like the prime movers. Mm. They just need to be doing their jobs well. I think the days of His Girl Friday are probably over, where mm. journalists are just doing that, you know, they're getting the hot story and the people need to know and they're throwing newspapers out into the street. I mean, it's gotten to the point where if you're in a position where you do have a broadcast seat or if you've got a column or if you've got a steady outlet, you are going to be more respected and you have to be more careful than somebody who's got their own blog online. And His Girl Friday, what an amazing film to end today's program with. Well, that does bring us to the end of today's show. By the Grace of God is out in the US and the UK and Ireland right now. Thanks to my guests today, two people who always have a point to make, Karen Grzanovich and Tim Roby. And to my producer, Holly Fisher as well. 
well. Robert Bound is back in the chair at the same time next week, but until then, from me, Ben Ryland, thanks for tuning in.